Now, one of the things that, uh, when we moved to Southern Illinois, uh, I'm originally from Asheville, North Carolina, my wife and I and my brother and his wife, we're all from Asheville, and one of the things that we've come to love about Southern Illinois are the sunsets and sunrises. I get kind of looks when I say that sometimes, but you kind of uh, understand from our perspective. We grew up in a place where the lowest third of the sky was almost always covered by mountains. Especially the deeper you went into the valleys, the higher the mountains got. And so there would be times when it would be morning long before you ever saw the sun. You would see the light of the sun, but you never actually see the sun until sometimes nine o'clock. Um, so it was beautiful in its own right, those kind of uh, sunsets and sunrises, because they highlighted the mountains, but we never actually got to see the sun rising just over the horizon. And I remember one of the most beautiful sunsets that Kathy and I have ever seen actually was sitting in Mr. Cool's parking lot in Marion, eating our froyo, looking west. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. The, the reds, the purples, the pinks. Uh, it was beautiful. Um, it, was a, uh, it was one of those life-changing moments in Mr. Cool's parking lot. <laughs> but this morning, we're going to kind of imagine Abraham and Sarah as if they were in a deep valley. And they are waiting on the promises of God to reach their fulfillment. They're kind of living in the shadows of life, waiting to see the sun. And they can see the light from where they are, but they never actually see the sun in their lifetime. Um, But they live and die in the knowledge that God is faithful because they can see His promises just on the horizon. Um, And that's what it's like not only for Abraham and Sarah, but for all in the Old Testament who have yet to see Christ. They know that He is coming. They see the light of His coming, but they have yet to see Him. Um, And so this morning, we're going to talk about how Sarah died in this knowledge that God is faithful. So would you turn with me, Genesis 23, verse 1. We're going to read through this passage again, and we're going to break it down as we go. We're going to seek to understand Genesis 23, 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the life, these are the years of the life of Sarah. Now time out. Isn't it funny how one sentence can encapsulate someone's entire life? Sarah lived 127 years. And we've been walking with Sarah and Abraham for months now. We've been walking through this entire book of Genesis, and we've been with them for months. And so this, we kind of feel this tangible grief coming up of this. Oh, not Sarah. We've seen her. We've seen the things that she's gone through. I mean, when she was young, she was married to Abraham, but was, was barren, even from a young age. And God calls them out of Ur, of the Chaldeans. He calls them out of their land and says, go to a land which I'll show you. And so Abraham and Sarah, they leave. And she follows Abraham. Then we see as they're going, they make a pit stop in Egypt, um, trying to find the land. And uh, there's a whole incident where Abraham kind of uses Sarah as a human shield. Uh, he's afraid that Pharaoh, seeing how beautiful that Sarah is, will try and take her by force and kill Abraham just to spite her. And so he tells a half-truth and says, well, she's my sister. Kind of leaves off the wife part. And uh, that doesn't turn out too well for the Pharaoh who, who takes her into his house and then God visits plagues upon Pharaoh's house. Well, Pharaoh, understandably upset that uh, Abraham left off this truth, sends back Sarah with gold and gives them cattle and all these things. Says, just just go, 
we're not mad, just go. <laughs> and so they, they leave, and God protected Sarah from Pharaoh and also kind of from, from her husband, from his cowardice in that, in that time. After that, um, God promises Abraham that he will make him a father of many nations and that through his seed, all the earth will be blessed. And so Sarah, on hearing this, says, yes, it, it can't be through me, though, because I'm old. See, at this time, she's already past childbearing age. She's already past menopause. She's just unable to bear a child. And so she says, well, perhaps God is meaning through somebody else. And so she gives her servant, Hagar, to Abraham's wife. And Abraham conceives Ishmael with Hagar. Um, but that was not what God had in mind. Hagar begins to have contempt for Sarah, and so Sarah deals harshly with Hagar, and Hagar runs away. But God brings her back with Ishmael. After this, um, God changes Sarah's name. to uh, It was Sarai, now it's Sarah. And he promises her, no, 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 the seed will come through you. And kind of on hearing this, um, she hears... Jesus and the two angels speaking to Abraham, and she kind of hears on the other side of the curtain, kind of laughs to herself, is this, is this possible? And Jesus hears her laughing. And he says, Sarah, why are you laughing? He says, I didn't laugh, I didn't laugh. Uh, said, but you did, but God will have the last laugh. You will have a son, you'll name him Isaac, which means he laughs. God laughs. And so, sure enough, a year later, the Lord returns to her and she conceives a son with, with Abraham. His name is Isaac. In between, there, in between that time, there's another incident where Abraham does the exact same thing he did with Pharaoh, but this time with Abimelech. God protects her again. And she gives birth to a son, Isaac. Two weeks ago, we learned that God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and that God provided a sacrifice at the very last moment. So these are kind of the events of the life of Sarah. So when you read that one sentence, the, the life of Sarah is 127 years, that's what that entails. Her entire lifetime summed up in one sentence. And honestly, if we were to just look at Sarah based on events and use human reasoning and logic, we, we might kind of judge her harshly. <laughs> we think, she's kind of a shrew, right? Uh, she's dealing harshly over here. She's dealing harshly over here. She curses Abraham at one point. But the New Testament actually provides more of the story. We see that God is at work in the life of Sarah. So would you turn with me very quickly? We're going to do two passages. Hebrews 11, 11, and 1 Peter 3, 1. So Hebrews 11, 11, just that one verse, and then 1 Peter 3, 1. And God, through the New Testament, is going to shed new light on the life of Sarah. We're going to see her as God was working in her heart. So Hebrews 11.11 11 says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So when we hear Sarah, we hear the doubt, we, see, we hear her laughing, but we don't see the actual faith. She had faith 
that God would fulfill his promise. The New Testament shows us God gave Sarah faith and she conceived. She's not here portrayed as being cynical or angry, but faithful. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus changes the way that we're even seen in New Testament reality? In 1 Peter 3.1, we're going to read this passage. Um, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be uh, external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So here we have just another snippet, another picture from the New Testament of what Sarah was really like. Sure, Sarah sinned. She had her faults, just as we do. But in this passage, she is described as Submissive, with a gentle and a, and a quiet spirit. These things that God had born in her. She's also described as fearless. Her calling, Abraham Lord, was not an idolatrous preoccupation. She wasn't committing idolatry in calling her husband Lord. Rather, she was committed to his headship in the marriage. And all these things were evidence of God's working in her life. You see Sarah in a different light through what Jesus has done. And now that we kind of have a fuller picture of Sarah and Abraham's relationship, um, this makes Abraham's grief all the more tangible. So let's read uh, Genesis 23.2 and see what happens. And Sarah died at Kariath Arabah, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead. Let's pause again. Here Abraham is mourning his beloved wife of over a hundred years. Can you just imagine? A hundred years of laughter, of pain, tears and comfort. A promised son. Sojourning all these times in tents with each year endearing one to another all the more. Abraham's grief is tangible. It was a love forged over a century. Also note the use of the word his dead in verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead. In a very real sense, Abraham and Sarah belonged to each other. Sarah belonged to Abraham. Abraham belonged to Sarah. They were one flesh. Now, Abraham had another wife, Hagar, but, and he had concubines as well, but it's telling that God actually never ascribes the title wife to either of them. In fact, when there's that whole dispute with Sarah and Hagar, the second one, God refers to Hagar as the slave woman. She doesn't say, your wife. Sarah was Abraham's wife. They were one flesh. No other woman had the freedom to speak to Abraham the way that Sarah did. She was submissive, but she's also persuasive as an equal. And that's 
this is a picture of marriage that God intended from the beginning with Abraham or with Adam and Eve. They belong to each other as one flesh. Now we don't know how long he took to grieve, but he grieved presumably kneeling or laying down before, because it said he rose up from before his dead. And then he went to secure a burying place for her. We'll continue reading in Genesis. And he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I might bury my dead out of sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now notice the posture of the Hittites towards Abraham. They're unbelievers, but they recognize the hand of God on Abraham's life. They call him a prince of God. And then perhaps they offer using their tombs out of fear. I mean, he did just whoop up on a bunch of armies to rescue Lot, right? Uh, it's formidable force, but or perhaps they were seeking to bargain something out of God by offering something to his servant. But regardless, Abraham answers to them. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went at the gate of the city. By the way, that's where they did business, wherever these, these deals happened. It was at the gate of the city. So this is important. All the Hittites are present for this. He said, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. So Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. I, I learned a new word this week um, about this kind of language. Uh, magniloquent. It means blowing smoke. And that's what he was doing here. Uh, it seems he was offering this, uh, letting everybody know. It's 400 shekels of silver that I'm giving to this guy. Um, but Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So this is a land deal. What, what's it doing here in the scriptures? Why, why is this important? Um... We're going to get to the details of the cave here in just a second, but notice Abraham's posture towards the Hittites. He's been sojourning in this land. He's been staying here in tents, living with his herds and his people. Um, and this whole land, this Canaan, has been promised to Abraham and his descendants. Yet, Abraham still goes to the local authority. He still, it says he bows to them. Even though his land has been promised to his descendants, he still honors the local authority, as we're charged to do in the New Testament. We're going to read just a very short passage from Romans um, that kind of illustrates what was going on here in Abraham's heart. Romans 13, 1 through 8. 
It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And we'll skip down. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So the sale, of exchange, sale and exchange of land was a legal trade. It wasn't something that you could just really say, hey, have it, it's yours. It's something that Abraham did not want to take advantage of Ephron's generosity. He wanted to pay him what he owed. It made it a legal trade. Not based on a whim, but on a transaction. It wasn't an issue of pride either. It wasn't Abraham un, being unwilling to take a gift. It was about him honoring the local authority, about those who God had placed over him. And so, we'll continue reading in Genesis 20, in 23, picking up in verse 17. We'll see how this deal turns out. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field that was in the cave and all that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, for all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Can you imagine the sadness as Abraham buries his bride in this cave? It was not already a tomb, it was, it was a cave. It was something that had no use for them at the time, maybe as a stable, but he bought this cave specifically for a burying place. In doing so, Abraham was protecting his wife's remains because it wasn't, she wasn't buried among strangers. She was buried in this cave that was made over to Abraham's property. We learn in Genesis 25 that Abraham is also buried in this cave. And later that Isaac, Jacob, and Leah were all later buried in this particular cave. Rachel uh, passed away during childbirth and was buried near Bethlehem. But Abraham and his descendants were buried in this cave. And note, this, this cave, this land, this Canaan was promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so him choosing this as his burial place instead of Ur was like him planting a flag, in a sense. This is going to be the property of my descendants. This is going to be their land. So him choosing this burial place is not random. There is intention behind it. But this is not the end of the story. You see, if we, if we just ended here, this is simply the story of a woman dying in the desert and being mourned by her husband. There's something so much greater at work here. There's something so much more to this story. You see, God promised Abraham that through his seed, singular, his seed, all the earth would be blessed. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Isaac 
And Rebekah gave birth to another son, Jacob. And Jacob had Judah. Judah had Perez. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Ram. And so on and so forth, all the way down to Mary. And God the Son, Jesus, the very one who told Sarah that she would conceive a son, the very one who appeared to Abraham and Sarah, took on human flesh and was born to Mary, the virgin descendant of Sarah. Now, Sarah was barren. She was physically incapable of having a child. And so was Mary. But God gave them both a son, ultimately the son, Jesus. Sarah's son carried the wood for a sacrifice up the hill of Mount Moriah. God the son, the blessed sacrifice, carried up the wood for his sacrifice at Mount Calvary. Jesus there was sacrificed in our place and in Sarah's place. Her very descendant was the one whose blood washed her clean from her sin and washes us clean even now. But not only that, Jesus rose from the grave. He defeated death. Death is conquered through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we now have eternal life, both we and Sarah through, G through Sarah's descendant, Jesus. Because of this, Sarah is alive even now, and she's worshiping her Lord. And if we are in Christ, we too will physically die. But when we close our eyes in death, we will wake to see his face. We have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the point of the story. It's not about Sarah and Abraham. It's about Jesus. These are the people that Jesus came through. God is being faithful to his promise, even though death and sin reigned on the earth. Jesus is Lord. And if we are in Christ, our bodies will be resurrected to eternal life. And if we are not in Christ, our bodies will be resurrected to eternal punishment. So I urge you, if you are not in Christ, place your faith in Christ. Repent of sin, because he has bought for us new life. I want to consider a statement that Abraham made in verse 4. Because in light of the truth of what God has done for us in Christ, in light of the new life that he has given us in Christ, in light of heaven that he has purchased for us, there is a mindset that we are to adopt. This mindset that Abraham had. He said in verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, and I'll bury my dead out of my sight. Here again, the New Testament sheds light on this passage. So we're going to turn back to Hebrews 11, and we're going to read this passage, and we're going to see exactly what this means. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer 
and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is what Abraham and Sarah were longing for. The heavenly city. A city prepared by God. Abraham and Sarah knew this earth was not their home. They lived and died as strangers and exiles. And this is the mindset that we desperately need to adopt. Brothers and sisters, we, this land is not our home. This land is not our home. Our hope is not the reform of our culture. Our hope is not the reform of our government. Our hope is Jesus Christ. And he is faithful to his promise. He has gone to prepare for us a place in his father's house. And we will see that city if we are in Christ. And if we adopt that mindset, here are three freedoms that Jesus has purchased for us. Number one, we have the freedom to be forgotten. We have the freedom to be forgotten. See, humanity has this preoccupation with legacy and with remembrance. We see pyramids that were built to honor dead kings. We see the Taj Mahal, one of the, one of the seven wonders of the world that was built to house the remains of one dead woman. And now even in modern days, we see people trying to extend the memory of their loved ones in, in peculiar ways. Has anybody ever heard of the, the burial pod? Has anybody seen this phenomenon? It's where they take the remains of your loved one and they put them in the ground in this pod with a sapling or a young tree planted. And so, in, and so in their minds they see, instead of graveyards, we're planting forests. And you can go and visit the tree with your loved one's remains, and it's kind of like they're living on through that tree. Dear brothers and sisters, we try so hard to preserve memory and to try to preserve our legacy but all these things will fail. Look at the state of the pyramids. They're, they're kind of in ruins, called ruins for a reason, right? Uh, Taj Mahal, one good meteor blast, man. You feel so Armageddon, it's gone. Um, God forbid lightning strikes a tree and it's like you're losing your loved one all over again. We cannot prolong, prolong life through structures. We cannot prolong life through trees. We cannot prolong life through anything of man, but through what Jesus has done. Abraham rejected the decadent tombs offered to him of the Hittites. Notice they offered him their choicest tombs. They said, 
bury, bury her wherever, in our choicest tombs. And he said, no, I want to bury her in a cave. I want to bury her in a cave. In a very real sense, it doesn't matter where we're buried. We all turn to dust anyway. This world is not our home. Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, that's a cool name, right? Uh, he was the founder of Moravian Missions in the 1700s. And he had this phrase that he would say, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That was his aspiration. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It's not a physical memorial that prolongs life. It's the work of Jesus. And because Jesus remembers us, we can be forgotten. Because Jesus remembers us, we can be forgotten by men. We are surrounded by graves and tombs of people we have no idea who they are. And it doesn't matter. God knows. Because God knows us, because God remembers us, we are free to be self-forgetful. And as we preach the gospel together for the glory of God, we live a living memorial. People. You can't bring possessions to eternity, but you can bring people. And so we preach the gospel that saves men and women. So that's the first freedom. We have the freedom to be forgotten. Second, we have the freedom to be bold. We have the freedom to be bold. Back in Hebrews 13, we read three verses. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. As sojourners and exiles, we should be willing to bear reproach for Christ, be willing to die for Christ and to live for Christ. Consider the Apostle Paul. Throw him in prison, he'll convert their jailers, right? Torture him to live as Christ. Kill him to die as gain. He's unassailable. Nothing you could do to the Apostle Paul would hurt him. Brothers and sisters, we should be unassailable. Because we have a sure and steady hope in Christ, we have the freedom to be bold. Here we have no lasting city. We seek that city that is to come, the new Jerusalem, whose builder is God. On earth we have no place. On earth we have no place. Our security will fail. Our homes burn to the ground. We have nothing but a cave for our bones. We take nothing with us. But there, Jesus told him, he told his disciples that he went to prepare a place for them in their father's house. Here we are mocked and marginalized. There we are welcomed and embraced. Here we see sin and death and all of its monstrous effects. But there, sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Amen? We will receive glorified, resurrected bodies. Just as Jesus rose from the grave, so will we. 
We are free to be bold. Consider this story of missionary John G. Payton in 1858. Responding to the call, God's call to the Pacific Islands, to the cannibals. He met many people that tried to put him off the idea, including one old Christian gentleman. The cannibals, the old man said, you will be eaten by cannibals. But Peyton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair in the likeness of our Redeemer. Whether by cannibals, by worms, we have boldness in Jesus Christ. And finally, we have the freedom to speak with certainty. So much of our lives are uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know which loved ones will pass away. We don't know We don't know if our houses will be standing. But we do know this. We know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that he has prepared for us a place. And if we are in Christ, we will see him face to face. If we are in Christ, we will rise from the grave with glorified bodies. We are in Christ. We know that we have a place in Christ. And loved ones, your loved ones, if they are in Christ, you will see them again face to face. We have a sure and steady hope through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can speak with certainty of what He has done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for what You've done for us that you've conquered death, that through your sacrifice, through your blood, we need no longer fear the curse. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. We have boldness. Jesus, we pray for more. We have certainty. We pray for more, Jesus. God, help us to not think of ourselves and our memories, but help us to think of you and your glory. Help us to be selfless in the years to come. We thank you for our sure and certain hope. May you be glorified. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.